You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. Revision Path is supported by Brevity & Wit. Brevity & Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They are always looking to expand their roster of freelance design consultants in the U.S., particularly brand strategists, copywriters, graphic designers, and web developers. If you know how to deliver excellent creative work reliably and enjoy the autonomy of a virtual-based freelance life with no non-competes, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit. Creative excellence without the grind. Revision Path is supported by the School of Visual Arts BFA Design and BFA Advertising Programs. SVA values originality and critical thinking while providing students an immersive learning experience with their faculty of industry experts. The BFA Design Program empowers students with the tools and opportunities to shape the future of design. And the BFA Advertising Program equips students with the skills in media and new tech needed to excel in the advertising industry. Learn more at sva.edu and enroll today to join one of the most influential artistic communities in the world. For 10 years, Revision Path has been dedicated to showcasing black designers and creatives from all over the world. Of course, as you may have heard recently on social media as well as here on the show, these may be the final episodes of Revision Path. So in order to keep bringing you the content that you love, we need your support now more than ever. If you have the means and you're in a position to help us grow, here's how you can contribute. Visit revisionpath.com forward slash donate and click the donate button there to make a one-time, monthly, or annual donation to help keep Revision Path running strong. Thanks for your support. And of course, a huge, huge thanks to those of you who have already donated. It's really going to help us, I think, push the show forward a little bit going into 2024. I don't know if that means continued production, but every single donation helps. I cannot stress that enough. Now for this week's interview. I'm talking with Jonathan Robinson. He's a writer, director and creative producer based out of Oakland, California. Let's start the show. All right. So tell us who you are and what you do. My name is Jonathan Robinson, and I am a creative producer, director, and writer supporting all kinds of interactive experiences, products, and bringing stories to life. When you look back at this year, at 2023, how would you describe it? Like, how's it been for you? It's been a little bit of a roller coaster. I think I kind of liken it to making a loop around a racetrack. Things feel very familiar, but also the urgency of how I'm trying to sort of move up in the race is starting to set in. I started the year still very much in a sort of personal sabbatical, working on a few writing projects and a VR concept, which was really fulfilling, but also because these projects were very personal uh, and tied to my personal experiences, my family history. I was doing a lot of digging up sort of latent emotional baggage and opening up wounds that I didn't know were there. You know, add to that sort of the reality of living in capitalism and needing to pay your bills, you know, trying to balance how to leverage the skills and the experience that I've had over the last close to 15 years working as a producer to generate some income without necessarily going back to the kind of soul-crushing work (laughs) that that it felt like I left quite intentionally. I've done a, a little bit of contract work to pay the bills, but in doing so have been reminded why I left in the first place. I think if anything... I feel like I went on a sort of condensed loop of what the past four or five years of my journey has been just in this one year. I think that's given me a renewed clarity and motivation to 
continue in this sort of uncomfortable, unfamiliar path towards what I think I know I want. That's a very diplomatic answer. (laughs) (laughs) That's me. I'm a producer by trade and also a little bit by personality. So um, always trying to find the middle ground that moves us closer to an objective. (laughs) Yeah. How are you making time for joy these days? One of those things is really starting to take some of these more like administrative skills that I've used in my professional life and trying to apply them to the emotional maturity work and growth that I've experienced over the last couple of years. I had a a moment of, I mean, as most of us did during the pandemic, of real clarity and understanding that I was not investing nearly enough time and energy into my relationships as I was into my career. And so from there, I started to just try to apply some of that structure that existed in my career that created that focus and apply that to relationships. It sounds like very academic or clinical, but I mean, I have a standing call with my best friend every Friday, or excuse me, every other Friday when we talk for about two or three hours on the phone. I have uh, standing dates with a couple of other friends, either on a weekly or monthly basis to just to make sure that we have a touch point. And it's not like we're only ever talking during these times, but Mm -hmm. I've found that like when you have that consistency, it makes it so much easier to seek out these connections in between. And I think for myself, I'm kind of a self-isolating personality when I don't have this sort of structure and, and pressure to show up if someone is not directly in my vicinity. And I, and I living here in Oakland, I actually don't have most of my closest friends in the area. They're either in New York or in Southern California or in Europe. And so it does take a little bit more effort on my part to make sure that those relationships are solid and are being fed. But I've really enjoyed seeing that growth and the ways in which it's made me less in my head about reaching out and connecting with people, even if it's just something as silly as sending a meme or a photo of something ridiculous that I just saw while I was crossing the street. Yeah. I mean, add to that, you know, like trying to make sure that I get out of the house and have in-person community. I've been attending this writing group here in Oakland at uh, Wolfpack Studios, little studio in downtown Oakland. And it's just maybe about like anywhere between like six to 12 of us once a month. And we get together for about two hours, two to three hours to go through a couple prompts. You know, we start with haikus and some short story prompts. Um, Folks are reading their poetry and rapping or they're not writers at all. And they just wanted to show up and have a good time. But I've found some really cool people who... Just being able to express yourself in a room of other people who are willing to express themselves and and open up in that way, I think has been really refreshing and and really rewarding for my own personal work. So that's kind of the variety. Yeah. I mean, I think that's really good to still keep that, you know, try to keep those lines of, of communication open. I know when the pandemic first started, that was, you know, kind of a thing a lot of people tried to do, at least through Zoom or through other types of <laughs> telecommunications type software, just like check in, see how things are going, et cetera. But now, I don't want to say we're a few years out from the pandemic, but certainly the world has gotten mm. back to its normal state. Well, I don't want to say normal. You know what I mean? We've started <laughs> yes, to, I do. we've pushed past that restrictive period. Yeah. And I think some people have moved past it. Some people haven't. It's. I still feel like it's a very sort of odd and touchy time in terms of communication. So I like that you're making those efforts to actually like keep in touch and keep those lines of communication open. Cause it can be so easy, especially if they don't live in the same city as you. It's so Absolutely. easy for those to just like die on the vine. Absolutely. 2024 is right around the corner. Have you thought about what you want to accomplish next year? I have. And as I said before, it is uncomfortable and unfamiliar, but I'm excited. I am going to be taking a renewed focus on these creative projects that I started at about a year and a half ago, 
I'm working on a sci-fi script and a couple of short stories that um, I want to shoot and preparing for a push to either potentially go to a film school later in the year and figure out how to kickstart a filmmaking career. So that's like one track. But on the other end of the spectrum is exploring what I describe as more experiential work, things that involve newer technologies like artificial intelligence and VR. There are a couple of artists that are really interesting in this space, one of which is a good friend who I used to work with in New York. Their name is Su Guan Chung, and they do essentially a lot of like collaborative performances where they are generating art along with their artificial intelligence and robotics companions that they have built and programmed over the last, I think, 12 years now. And so I'm very excited to find ways to replicate that same kind of work, as well as find ways to collaborate <laughs> with folks in that space, including Suguen themselves. But in terms of like what all of that looks like, you know, I, I can't really tell you. It's really, I grew up in the church, so it's really easy for this phrase to come to mind, but I am literally walking by faith and not by sight. I am <laughs> just putting one foot in front of the other and juggling the variables and catching the consequences, which I mean, I guess is what it means to be a producer. So I've had a lot of practice in that space, dealing with ambiguity and uncertainty, but it's a lot easier to do that when you have conviction, which I think has been the the theme that is coalescing towards the end of this year in terms of like how I want to approach 2024. It's with conviction. I don't need to know everything. I don't need to have everything absolutely planned out. I don't need to know how everything is going to work out, but I do have to walk with a sort of full body yes and a confidence that is grounded in purpose. And that really is what conviction is. So that's what my 2024 looks like, <laughs> walking into the unknown, sure-footed. I like that. I like that a lot. It's funny that you also kind of tied that back into the work in a way about like, this is what it means to be a, a producer, uh, which I want to unpack a little bit later. Now, I was, you know, when I do my research and everything to try to find out more about the guest, and you alluded to this a bit earlier, kind of being on this this personal journey, what brought that on? I mean, I think when I look back at it and in hindsight, it started at the end of 2017-ish, basically when I started at Facebook. Up until this point, I had been working in New York in the advertising field. I'd bounced around between a couple of different agencies, but at that point, I was around three years into my second stint at a production company called The Mill, and essentially being like one of two senior producers in their experiential and interactive division, which they had just uh, started to build back up. I got this opportunity to work at Facebook and the job was in London. So I'd be leaving the country to live outside of the country for the first time since I was like three years old when I was in Costa Rica. And so I was really excited about that opportunity. This is also 2017. So if we think back to where the world was sort of sociopolitically, an opportunity to work at a place like Facebook is a sort of double-edged sword, high impacts, massive reach, and you're working on a product that touches almost half of the people on the planet in one way or another. But at the time, we were also starting to discover more concretely anyway, that some of the ways in which that impact was landing in people's lives was actually quite harmful. And that maybe something actually could have been done about that, but simply wasn't. So I threw myself into that opportunity with optimism and a lot of youthful vigor. But I, I think the combination of one, understanding the relative impact of one or even a couple hundred individuals in a corporation that has 70,000 employees and a global reach it makes for a quite Sisyphean task, I think is the word, <laughs> pushing that boulder up the hill every day. Mm -hmm. 
And also living in London, moving there without any friends and family. And all of these things sort of coincided and combined with the point in my life that I was at. And I fell into a, a pretty deep depression. And then I learned the first rule of working in tech. And that is that every six to eight months, there'll be a reorg. Um, <laughs> and I was reorged out of my role and needed to find a new one. And the I had one of two options, stay in London and find a team within the, the Facebook ecosystem that could use my skills so that I could stay in London or move to the Bay Area for this particular team that had headcount. And they were like, we'll take you on. We want to have you. But it means you got to move back to the States. And with option two, I came back to the States and just in time for about a year's worth of soaking up the benefits of this uh, Northern California climate and nature and all of the amazing culture of, of Oakland right mm -hmm. before the pandemic and sort of back in isolation. That isolation, again, just sort of brought to the forefront the struggle I was having between the kind of impact I wanted to have in a company like Facebook and, and the kind of impact that I was actually having and whether or not that was commiserate or whether or not I could square that with the negative impact that the company was having, at least from my perspective. And so you're sitting in a studio by yourself for all day, <laughs> for months on end, as mm -hmm. uh, a lot of us know, and it led to a lot of introspection. I was spending a lot of time in therapy. Actually, I had just started therapy right before the pandemic started, which was amazing timing, but was also spending a lot of time actually talking to my mother about her own sort of personal journey and the spiritual journey that she was on at the time. We started talking about different belief systems and she really surprised me by bringing up Ifa and this sort of uh, African indigenous spiritual frameworks of, of West Africa, specifically the Yoruba. And I started to dig into some of these things and do a little bit of research on, on my own. And she invited me to like a weekly class, a weekly Zoom with someone who was going to sort of run through a curriculum to explain the basics of the framework. And without getting into the details of the spiritual beliefs themselves, I think what was most impactful about that was this underlying system that was about understanding your place within this particular life, this place and time that we exist and how it connects to our ancestors, the people who came before us, the people around us, and the unseen forces that are at play, whether that be natural forces, societal forces, technological forces. And it really started to give me almost like a narrative framework to be able to investigate my life and see what was working and what wasn't. What did I want to change? Mm -hmm. And that's kind of how I got to this place of, I don't think working in tech is the thing for me. I'm not knocking it for anybody who does want to. I do think the work is incredibly important for all of the reasons that I left. But it became very clear that my path, my purpose is in storytelling and finding ways to weave narratives that can help us investigate the relationship between what we see in front of us and what we feel like we experience as reality. And those unseen forces, the parts of reality that are just outside of our perception and how to sort of marry the two, make them compatible and then create a better reality. Because I do think that that is what we are here for, to leave the world a better place than we found it. And we can't really do that if we're not honest about who we are and the world that we live in and what kind of world that we want. So yeah, long-winded answer to say that's that's how I got here. <laughs> I was going to say some of those things that you mentioned, I mean, 100% mirror, I think, what a lot of people might be feeling about working in tech, I think just in general. A couple of months ago, we had Maya Gold Patterson on the show, and mm. I've known Maya for a long time. I knew her since she was a product designer in Chicago, and like since nice. then, she has actually, she's also worked at Facebook, she also worked yeah. at Twitter, she created I Twitter spaces. Oh you, oh, you did? You did? Okay, yeah. cool. Yeah. I, I love Maya. She's, she's awesome. Yeah. But she was talking about how like right now she's also sort of taking this break and being like, I'm kind of like done with tech right now. Like I'm going to take a year. 
I'm going to spend mm-hmm. it with my, with my family and like just sort of figure out like what these next steps are. Mm-hmm. I think what we're seeing with tech and, and I want to, you know, talk a little bit more about this kind of creative journey because I feel like part of this personal journey you went under, underwent deals also with you as a creative because you said you emerged talking about storytelling. But I feel like we're starting to see that tech is not all it's cracked up to be. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's it certainly, surprise, surprise. I mean, well, yeah, surprise, <laughs> right? But like, I think the way, and I mentioned this in the interview with Maya, I was like, it kind of felt like in some way we were kind of sold like a false bill of goods about tech, about how it is going to offer you this economic prosperity and these opportunities to be on these projects that can change the world, especially for large tech companies. But then you Absolutely. get in there and there's, and you're subject to so many other isms and like you said, professional reorgs and things like that. And it can be easy to feel like a cog in the machine and that your work doesn't really have the impact that maybe you were told it does, you know? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, it's not necessarily that any of those things were completely untrue. You absolutely can work on these projects that are have massive impact and change the world and be financially lucrative, even for yourself as an individual, as much as it is often understood that, that most of that financial impact is going to go to somebody else sitting in a bigger office. But that doesn't actually always balance out with all of those other things you mentioned, the reorgs, the isms, the sort of cog in the machine feeling that you get when you work on something diligently and over long extended hours with a massive team and you spend two to six months on something and then all of a sudden somebody decides that no one will ever see it, period. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that gets old actually rather quickly. Very quickly. Absolutely very quickly. <laughs> I'm thinking of my own journey. The last place that I worked at uh, was this tech startup based out of San Francisco. And I came on under the title creative strategist. Creative cool. strategist was like a title. It's funny you mentioned the pandemic because during the pandemic, I was also thinking of like, well, what do I really call myself? Because prior to mm-hmm. getting, I don't want to say prior to getting into tech, but prior to working for the startup that I worked at at the time, I had my own business. Mm. still have the business, but I, I mean, back then I had like a staff of nine people. They were designers, developers. I was kind of doing creative work with MailChimp and WordPress and all this kind of stuff. But then you get into a startup in these companies and the startup I was at at the time, I changed titles maybe about six different times as the company grew. And Mm -hmm. so each time that title changed, I don't know if it really reflected what it is that I really do. It sort of just puts you in a bit of a, a box in a way. Like I went from being a content marketer to a design communications lead to marketing lead to head of media. And I think the last title I had was like senior creative strategist because it felt right. It was like, yes, I know the creative part, but I also know the business part and I can sort of bring these two things together in a way. Right. But what I basically was doing, and this kind of alludes, I think a bit to your story is like, I basically was taking creative projects that the company wanted to do and making them happen, which is a producer <laughs> type of that's thing, right. which back then I didn't really think that that's what I did, or at least that I didn't associate that with what I did. But like the last place I worked, we made a print magazine. We made a print and an online magazine. And I mean, I threw everything into it because I've always wanted to do a magazine. I grew up on magazines and we got two issues out the door. Really, we only got one issue out the door. The second one came after they laid off the entire team. But it was a quarterly magazine. I put so much into it. The structure, I'd send out this weekly hot sheet to let people know when assignments were due. And these are the artists that are working on certain visuals and all this sort of stuff and had a Mm -hmm. plan for at least a six issue run. And like, Mm. these are the themes that we're going to talk about. And these are the writers that I've, you know, that I want to bring in. And like, we did the first one, great success. And we were leading up to the second one. The second issue was at the printer. Like it was set to go out a week Mm. from then. And then they laid us all off because they invited us to like a Slack group called Goodbye. And we're like, wait a minute, what? Wow. (laughs) Invited us to a Slack group called Goodbye. And I think I started my work day at eight and by noon I was unemployed. Like it was so, it was just like that. And I was so pissed off. 
because it didn't give me yeah. enough time to really like pull together all my stuff. But it's like, yeah, you spend so much time putting something together and then it never sees the light of day. Like, yeah, we were going to yeah. do this issue on Web3 and I had I found a black Web3 ethicist. Wow. Okay. <laughs> and <laughs> brought them on as like a guest editor in chief. And we, we curated the entire magazine for like the point of view we wanted to have. It will never see the light of day. That's crazy. This is unsustainable. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> unsustainable. Yeah. I think we can only get like one or two of those experiences before we're like, what, what, are, we, what are we doing this for? Yeah. I've had three of them since the pandemic started. I had one in 2020. Mm one in 2021 and one last year. And yet it wears on you in such a insidious way where you know that you can do great work because you know that what you're capable of, but then it's like, does it have value in this? I don't know, tech system that I'm a part of. It's so weird. Yeah. I really appreciate that. That particular phrasing, does it have value in this ecosystem that I exist in? I think that was the turning point in at least my therapy practice um, that helped me decide, okay, I need to leave or at the very least I need to change how I approach this space and Mm -hmm. show up in this space because I don't have the same value system as these people do. I'm being evaluated on a completely different criteria Mm -hmm. than I evaluate myself. I'm disappointed and feeling upset because I keep trying to make their value system mesh with mine. They don't need to. They don't need to. I step into this space. I understand that these are the criteria. These are the objectives. These are the responsibilities that I have. So I'll do those things. But I think I may be misremembering this like secondhand quote, but I believe it was Toni Morrison talking about her first job Mm -hmm. and how her father told her, listen, you work over there. Those people are not your family. You go there, you get your money, and then you come home. Mm. And that is how she approached every job that wasn't, you know, her personal projects. And that's kind of the mindset I had to switch into that helped me get to the place of, actually, I don't think I want to keep showing up here at all. Yeah. It's tough because, you know, with these tech companies, I mean, we're, we're talking, I mean, we might as well just keep talking about it, but like, we're talking about these tech companies and, the first thing that they really try to sell you on is like, this is, you know, we're like a family. This is like a family thing. And, and like, even yeah. that can be like super loaded, especially if you don't come from a great family environment. You're like, that could Absolutely. turn you off if they're like, wait a minute. I, I actually don't fuck Absolutely. with my family like that. So I don't know if this is like a thing yeah. that I want, but, but it, it sort of builds this, um, in this sort of period of introspection, you start to wonder if the work you do is even valued by this industry. So like, Maybe what I do is better suited for media than for tech, or maybe it's better suited for nonprofits than for tech, like something where the abilities that I have can be used towards a greater good. That's not about KPIs and personal performance plans and stuff like that. That's exactly right. I think that that language that they sort of, I mean, it's not just language. It's a whole like sideshow experience that they sort of bombard you with as you step into these environments where they tell you, yes, we're all family. Uh, this company is yours. No problem. It's someone else's problem. You can have all the impact that you can possibly dream of if you just put together an idea and, and work hard to make it happen. All of those things. And you know, they talk about the values that they have showing up as your authentic self, uh, whatever that means. And radical honesty and and being collaborative and caring about the humans that we serve, uh, you know, our customers, our users, or whatever a new term they <laughs> decide to use <laughs> to clean up the fact that actually they're talking about the people they make money off of. All of that sort of sets this context where you can very quickly forget that you're in a corporation, like you're working at a place that is an equivalent size and scale of like an Exxon mobile. And maybe if you were working at AT&T, you wouldn't necessarily think too much about the coffee and the, the cereal and the food courts and all of the amenities and how it does actually feel very comfortable and mm-hmm. like a family. And so it's easier to remember that you work for a corporation. 
I think because of the way that some of these tech companies decorate their culture, the aesthetics of their culture, obscure that reality that it is very much a corporate culture where capital and profit reign supreme. And as much as they might say that they want to prioritize the betterment of humanity, they will always make sure that they run that language by legal so that they can always prioritize their dollars in that final hour. Yeah. And and just sort of unpacking all of that takes some time. Yeah. And it takes some introspection. You really do have to ask yourself, is this company mine? Do my values actually align with the stated values of the company? And then are those values being practiced in mm-hmm. the day-to-day? See those values in the impact that we have. Yeah. I mean, I think that's difficult enough to ask of yourself, but it is a necessary first step so that you can ask it of the companies that you work for. Right. At this point, I'm like Marshawn Lynch. I'm just showing up so I don't get fined. That's it. That's it. (laughs) (laughs) That is it. I'm just here so I don't get fined. Okay. (laughs) I work for AT&T. I work for AT&T for almost two and a half years. This was back in 2000. From 2006 to 2008, I worked there. And at the time, Mm. their internal sort of slogan was shaping human capital. Which is like, <laughs> okay, like you walk into the That's building so and you see this, bi- you have this big, <laughs> big, huge banner shaping human capital. And I mean, the two and a half years I worked there were grueling in not so much in an emotional way, but it's like it wore on me in such a way that it was affecting me physically and I had to leave. Yeah. And that's when I left and started my own business. And, you know, I feel like that's really when I started to find myself and my career and my purpose is when I left. Mm. And the only reason I sort of got back in, you know, nine years later, honestly, was because the market had changed and the kind of work that I was doing with my studio just wasn't as profitable as it was before. And I wanted more stability because, mm-hmm. you know, working for yourself is great, but working for yourself can be a real roller coaster, especially because we started Amen. in the middle of a recession and like mm. not very easy to try to like make the money that you need to pay your bills and just sort of exist in this capitalist society. That's right. And I think things are different now, but not necessarily better because what's happened is a lot of these tech startups are picking the worst parts of corporate America and wrapping them in this sort of aesthetic, as you mentioned, to make it seem like, oh, it's going to be fun and, and foosball tables and, and beer on Fridays and, and stuff oh, like yeah. that. Krista yeah. Tillman, who I've, who I've had on the show before, she's a friend of mine and, I know she mm. she once talked about filters. No, what'd she say? Perks as filters. So like a lot of companies mm-hmm. will list all these different perks. And the perks are are fairly similar among companies of a certain size that have reached a certain level of funding. It's like unlimited PTO. And, you know, this sounds great if you're coming from yeah. a place where you, <laughs> you know, had to like fight and claw for every day off that you had to get. Unlimited PTO sounds great. Yeah. But then that can also be a filter for... The fact that the internal culture will overwork you so much that you will feel guilty for utilizing those days and often get penalized for using those days, even if they're not in an egregious manner. I mean, this especially happened during the pandemic with remote stuff like, you know, it's remote. You can work from anywhere. And some people take advantage of that. Actually, at the last place that I worked, I'm not going to name where, but people can search and find. There were some (laughs) people that basically like traveled every month and it was remote And so they could work from anywhere and they're like, oh, well, if I can work from anywhere, I'm just going to backpack through Europe. That sounds nice. But then what happens is that builds enmity with the people that don't backpack through Europe or or can't just pick up and leave and go work places. And so even though the company had that as a a perk of working there, they ended up penalizing Mm -hmm. this person for it. And, you know, they were just sort of like, I don't understand. I'm still getting my work done. I'm going between time zones. Nothing is happening. and, And I'm getting penalized for what I do outside of work in this way yeah you know so absolutely yeah divesting from all of this is i feel like the smartest move to try to make especially with what we've seen in the past couple of years with tech layoffs unionization Mm -hmm. efforts and Mm -hmm. really the rise of ai and these sort of like new technology things i mean we're talking now just fresh off of the writers not the writer strike the um the actor strike just ending yeah but what we've seen this year if we look back through the whole year, we've seen three major unions 
have mm-hmm. strikes and like win the That's writers, right. yeah. well, the auto workers, and now the actors. Mm-hmm. And so what mm-hmm. does that mean now for the future of work in this country, especially now that we see that these efforts can work, we can lobby together and have better, more holistic workplaces and things like that? I don't know. I mean, mm-hmm. I worked at a place where we unionized in 2020 and they laid us off three months later. <laughs> so mm. so mm. I don't know if this mm-hmm. means we, you know, now there's more power that exists. I feel like I'm rambling a little bit, but no, a lot of things are changing in a lot of different ways right now. And I think if you're a creative person, it can be tough to kind of find your anchor amidst all this. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And you touched on a lot of different ways in which the currents of society, uh, or at least the trends that society is experiencing all of the different ways that they they sort of knock us around as creatives trying to find our footing but i do think at the same time those currents those trends those forces they can help us understand some of the different forces at play on the inside of us so that we can find like what movements to to attach ourselves to or to you know move in parallel with that can help us figure out like what's going to be right for ourselves as much as you know all of this all of this promise of tech was a great way for a lot of us to move up the sort of economic ladder in ways that other folks in our families uh, or previous generations were unable to mm-hmm. or barred from at the same time we also see that like just because you get higher up the the ladder doesn't mean the guy at the top of the pyramid isn't going to kick this ladder off in order to save a couple dollars. You can make all of the cool stuff in the world, but if this company needs to ensure that its profit margins look a certain way so that their shareholders are going to be happy, then you'll find out exactly how they feel about family, so to speak, and you'll be gone. And these technologies that we created together out of an enthusiasm in a more optimistic sense for the possibilities and all of the different solutions that we could find within these technologies, they are at the same time because they are owned by people at the top who don't necessarily have our best interest in mind um, and are specifically incentivized to care more about how much money shareholders are making than how well our lives are impacted. We see those technologies being turned against us. And and at the same time, we, to the point um, of these different unions recently being victorious over some of those forces, we can see that when we look to each other's humanity and find the common cause and stand in solidarity with the prioritization of the human aspect of our work, that we are not capital, we are humans, mm-hmm. and stand firm in those convictions. We can quite literally face giants and move mountains, but it is still like difficult. You know, there's for every actor's union or writer's union or the auto workers union, we have, to your point, examples of unionizing and immediately finding yourself out of work or all of the different ways that unions have been combated in the tech industry or in the visual effects industry and the advertising industry, all of which I've had some experience working in. And I see how much the struggles of these writers, these actors, they mirror exactly what so many of us have experienced, both in tech and in advertising and visual effects and production. We just haven't been able to make some of those in mass movements uh, last long enough to make that impact. But doesn't mean we shouldn't keep trying. No, we definitely should keep trying. And I think because we're seeing how it's worked on, again, this very large level, like in the entertainment industry or in the auto industry, I think it's giving people more visibility into it. And honestly, it's giving people more knowledge. It's amazing. You know, when we were back when we were trying to unionize at Glitch, it was amazing how many people had like no experience about unions and what they were, except like mm-hmm. negative talking points. And it's like, you do realize that some of the the perks that you have are the direct results of unionization in the past. Like, Right. The eight hour workday. Like these things came because <laughs> people unionized in the past. So you wouldn't have to work 12, 13, 14 hours a day or whatever. But, but yeah, we're starting to see, I think the tide shift a little bit. I'm curious though, for you, like where did this like 
and if I can call it this, this love for creating and producing and storytelling, like where did this come from? This come from like you growing up or like, Mm. tell me about that. Yeah. I've always been fascinated with stories uh, from a sort of consumption perspective. My mom was trained as a teacher and sort of raised me with a strong emphasis on traditional education. So I was always reading something. I mean, I had to do book reports over summer break. When I would finish my homework too fast, she would create more curriculum for me to do. I was getting in trouble for talking too much in class. And the teacher said, well, he finishes his work and then he starts talking to the other students and that's disruptive. So she made an agreement with the teacher to create an entire curriculum that she would grade that would be included as part of my grade. Wow. (laughs) Mama didn't play. So like, no, no, not at all. So I was constantly reading and consuming stories. And I've always been a deeply curious individual. I don't want to just know what happened or even how it happened. I also want to understand why it happened. And I think all of that extra emphasis on critical thinking, on reading analysis, and on doing your own research and citing your sources sort of built this almost like programming in my brain to understand stories both from a surface level as an entertainment experience, but also on a deeper level as a tool for communicating information and actually being able to sort of transcribe experiences from one person to another without having to directly live through the the thing that was included in the story. So I've always sort of had that perspective on storytelling to a certain point. Like, uh, you know, I graduated high school and was like, I want to be a comic book artist. Uh, You know, the Mm -hmm. dream was to work at Marvel, maybe uh, work on an X-Men or Spider-Man comic. And after some experience in an art school, the now defunct Art Institute of Las Vegas, very quickly understood that I wasn't going to get the kind of education that I needed from that particular place and moved to New York just because I felt like that was my Mecca, the place that had been calling to me where I was going to figure it all out and quite literally stumbled into a career in advertising as a producer. I mean, I was on my girlfriend's couch trying to figure out how I was going to pay rent the next month, found a Craigslist ad for a project manager dash intern. And my only question in the interview was, what's a project manager and how can you be a manager and an intern at the same time? That experience really opened up an entire world of possibilities. I didn't realize that there were so many creative individuals with stable, well-paying jobs, even if you know you are working 12 hours a day and maybe more than that sometimes, mm-hmm. that you could make websites and flash banners and mobile apps and uh, you know one job leads to another. And I think the place that really blew the doors open on the possibilities was the mill. Working there was quite a privilege in both stints that I was there. The first time they were starting their, what they called their mill digital team. And the whole idea was around, the mill is traditionally a VFX studio. They do all of the, their whole little tagline is like, if you watch the Super Bowl, at least two out of every three commercials that you saw, the mill touched in one way or another. But they were trying to move into this more digital, out-of-home, experiential field that was starting to pop up at the time. And I got to work with a really incredible dream team of creative and technically excellent individuals who sort of took me under their wing as this young 22-year-old like little idiot who didn't know anything, but would follow instruction and ask as many questions as came to mind. And they exposed me to the possibilities of what you can do with a serviceable knowledge of available technology and a strong creative vision. Add to that the third, the third leg of the stool, some business sense and tact to be able to convince folks to pay for those things. And you got yourself a pretty promising path for making some cool things and getting paid to do that. 
But working there meant being able to, on the one hand, work with animators who typically did 3D animation for visual effects in like a Gillette commercial and trying to explain to them how you're going to turn a couple of data sets into a a particle visualization that replicates the visuals of like the sort of mackerels and and tuna and and yeah, like and a swarm of and, something like a school exactly. of fish or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. You know, trying to convince these folks to do things with their expertise and their most familiar tools that they had never been asked to do. And then also trying to tell stories with these data points, because again, we're, you know, in the advertising and marketing field. So everybody's got a narrative. And so that experience really helped to shape the possibilities of how I could connect my love of stories and the depths of what stories mean, not just the what or the how, but the why with these new emerging technologies and the deep institutional knowledge of more traditional media that could influence the way that you combine these new technologies to create experiences that that really allow us to experience stories in ways that we hadn't been able to before. Yeah, it really does feel like a serendipitous journey where I sort of stumbled into all of the places and things that I needed in Mm -hmm. order to be the person that I am today to do the things that I want to do. But I like to believe that that's how life is supposed to work. You put one foot in front of the other, and then you end up where you're supposed to be. Stepping out on faith, right? That's right. (laughs) You mentioned your mom. You mentioned this girlfriend you had at the time. Who were some of the other people that really like helped support you during this journey? I think I'm going to name off some of the folks that uh, really stood me up at the mill that first time. My first mentor, Kay Gouda, was the senior producer for that mill digital team. And when I say like he stepped in as a big brother and really looked out for me, both from a, you know, an in the office process perspective, but also from a like outside life, like what are you trying to do in this space? And here are some of the possibilities. Mm-hmm. He really set me up with a lot of the tools that I still use to this day to help navigate ambiguity and figure out what it is that I want. He, uh, yeah, he just sort of built in these habits of constantly seeking new information on a daily basis. I used to start my day by combing through like a folder of 10 to 12 websites and blogs that would post about new marketing and technology experiences and news. And then I, you know, sort of put that together into an email to send out once a week for the team. I was already a curious individual, but being able to focus that curiosity in a way that tied to whatever productive endeavor that I was trying to achieve at the time, I think was a really formative bit of knowledge. It also helped me to sort of find the calm in the storm of being a producer in a high-paced environment Mm -hmm. with lots of conflicting objectives and demands, just really being able to settle in and say like, you know, I'm not going to solve everything, but if I can solve one thing, what is that? And let me do that first. It really sort of grounded me and allowed me to uh, gracefully navigate some of the more tumultuous projects and moments in my career. So Kay Gowdo is a huge influence. The executive producer of that team, Bridget Shields, really looked out for me both in sort of setting me up for success in those, in some of the smaller pitch projects that came in uh, the door during the that year that I worked there the first time. I mean, I, I did my first pitch to Nike and landed the, the job under her guidance. And she trusted me to do this, having not seen any real evidence that I could. She just trusted me and gave me the support to make decisions and was always available to talk through any questions that I had. But more than that, she looked out for me when we all got fired. <laughs> I was on that that team for about eight months before, similar to your Slack, your goodbye Slack channel, we were all individually called downstairs into the conference room one after another. And every time somebody came back up, they came back up silent 
closed their laptop, grabbed their things and walked out of the room. Yeah, eventually I understood what was happening, started saving some files. But yeah, we were all sort of let go unceremoniously without notice on a Friday. And the following Monday morning, Bridget had an email in my inbox of three different places that she had already called to let them know that I was available for work. Wow. She told me exactly what salary to say that I was being paid, which was not the salary that I was being paid, but it was definitely going to be a healthy increase. She told me exactly what projects to reference and how to represent my impact and what title I need to speak to, interactive producer or creative producer. And that's sort of where that naming convention was first introduced for me. Those connections, those calls that she made really paved the way for every job I've had since then. I really appreciate the way that she looks out for her team because I got to admit that wasn't even something that was like super special for me. She does that for everyone she works with. So really appreciate those individuals. I think more recently, I got to give credit to that second mill crew, the second stint, particularly on our executive briefing center, experiential multi-year project. These folks really helped me sort of figure out that I was more than just a good producer, that I could be a good creative leader as well. Kinda Akash is top of the list. She's my partner now. I met her there at the mill. Our creative collaboration really expanded the ways that I felt comfortable showing up in executive meetings and representing creative work, not just you know the X's and O's of a schedule or a budget. Collaborators like Will Arnold, whose endless curiosity really inspired me to continue to explore the visual concepts that I wanted to introduce into some of the work that I was exploring at the time. And he actually came through and provided a lot of the projection visuals in the music video that I ended up directing a couple of years ago. Eric Chang, who's a, a creative strategist and writer, and his wild imagination and reserved intellect, just a really grounding force that like helps me cut the noise out and really focus on what matters while also finding joy in uh, really small things. Yeah, I mean, I could probably go on and on and on. <laughs> There's so many people who have made it possible for me to be where I am today. And if I keep going, I'm going to go forever. <laughs> what advice would you give to somebody that's they're listening to this episode, they're hearing your story and, and everything, and they want to sort of, I don't know, maybe just try to figure out where they are right now. Like maybe this has been a tough year for them and they're feeling a bit unmoored and trying to kind of find their way in this current space? Like, what advice would you give them? I think first, I'd say slow down and listen, look around, see, to take note of where you are and how you feel. I think ultimately, one of the things that has been most emphasized over the last couple of years for me has been that you're always exactly where you're supposed to be. Where you go next is entirely up to you. We can only actually live in the present, but when we are able to be our most present, we actually get to expand the idea of what present is in order to reshape the past and what it means for us and to be able to sort of look further into the future as to where we want to go and what our next step should be. For us, anyway, because ultimately the only person who can tell you what to do next and where to go is you, because you're the only one who knows what you want and why you want it. There's plenty of noise in the world that can sort of interrupt, obscure, or even manipulate that knowledge. I mean, we've talked about it over the course of this conversation. The technology, the corporations, the capitalism, the politics, all of it, all of that noise makes it really hard to hear your own voice. But when you seek that voice through stillness, through rest, through reflection, it becomes a lot easier to know that your next step is the right one. 
because it's your step. And that is really all that matters. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? Like, what kind of work do you want to be doing? Well, first, I want to be on set of major sci-fi production, <laughs> hopefully <laughs> making my story come to life, even if that is an optimistic projection. I want to be involved in the conversation around how these new forms of technology, particularly artificial intelligence and virtual reality, don't have to be at odds with the most precious aspects of our human experience, our genuine humanity. In fact, if we take the time to understand ourselves and the technologies in full context of how either came to be, then we can find parallels that can, between those sort of evolutionary journeys, and use the relationship between the human interface and the technological interface to better ourselves from a truly human perspective. I don't mean like escaping into fantasy worlds and ignoring deteriorating physical reality that we all live in in this planet, or even sort of like replacing aspects of our humanity with technology to make things easier or more convenient. I do mean truly improving the human experience, deepening our connection with each other and with the natural world through experiences that teach us about those relationships as we interact with these technologies that are so complex and so immersive. Those are the kinds of projects that I want to bring to life from an experiential standpoint. Five years from now, I want to be having the conversation of of how these experiences that I've created for both installation and virtual reality have really tried to hammer home that point and bring that conversation to a larger audience. Well, just to kind of wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more information about you, about your work? Like, where can they follow you, follow your journey? Where can they find that online? Well, you guys can follow me on Instagram for my musings and ramblings. That's at U-A-T-J-O-N-C. Or keep up with me via my website, johnrobinson.me. That's J-O-N-R-O-B-I-N-S-O-N.me. Honestly, those are the two best places to keep up with what I'm doing. And a lot of (laughs) what I'm doing on Instagram is shouting about our current realities. So (laughs) brace yourself and bring your thinking cap. I love a discussion. Always happy to hear from anybody on any of these topics. Don't be a stranger, so to speak. Well, John Robinson, I want to thank you so, so much for, for coming on the show. I mean, I sort of had an idea how I thought this conversation might go. And then once you started talking, like, I feel like it just sort of went in a completely kind of freeform direction, which I think is good. I mean, I think we, we touched on a lot of different topics that are, I think, on the minds of a lot of creatives right now, particularly, I think a lot of creatives that work in the like tech industry and such. I really feel like you're at a place where you're trying to figure it out. You're trying to figure out what your next move is. And I think you gave such great advice about just like slowing down and listening and letting that be what guides you next. And I'm really excited to see what's going to guide you next once you come sort of at the end of this personal journey. So thank you so much for for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Maurice. I enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, I look forward to the new uh, individuals you have on. This has been an amazing platform, and I really appreciated the opportunity. big thanks to Jonathan Robinson. And of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Jonathan and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Revision Path is supported by Brevity and Wit. Brevity and Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They are always looking to expand their roster of freelance design consultants in the U.S., particularly brand strategists, copywriters, graphic designers, and web developers. If you know how to deliver excellent creative work reliably and enjoy the autonomy of a virtual-based freelance life with no non-competes, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit. Creative excellence without the grind.
Revision Path is supported by the School of Visual Arts, BFA Design, and BFA Advertising programs. SVA values originality and critical thinking while providing students an immersive learning experience with their faculty of industry experts. The BFA Design program empowers students with the tools and opportunities to shape the future of design. And the BFA Advertising program equips students with the skills in media and new tech needed to excel in the advertising industry. Learn more at sva.edu and enroll today to join one of the most influential artistic communities in the world. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio located in Atlanta, Georgia. Our executive producer is Maurice Cherry, that's me, and our editor and audio engineer is RJ Basilio. Intro voiceover is done by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. If you like this episode, please let us know. We're on Instagram, we're on Twitter, you can search for us at Revision Path, just all one word. Or you could follow us on Spotify, we're on Amazon Music. Now we're on YouTube. The full archive of episodes with transcripts is now available on YouTube. That is phenomenal. So please make sure you go check us out on YouTube. You could also leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcast. You can leave us a message on our voicemail hotline, which I don't think a lot of people know that, even though we mention it every episode. We have a voicemail hotline that you can call and leave messages directly for the show. Uh, that number is 626 603 0310. As always, thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time.